Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tiny DevOps, the show where we believe you do not need a thousand engineers to do world-class DevOps. Today's episode is a little different than what I've done before. We're doing a question and answer uh, with questions that came from you, the audience. I have a co-host with me today, Amando, who will hopefully provide some wisdom and guidance in uh, answering some of these questions. Uh, Amando and I have been friends for several years. We met several years ago uh, when we were both living in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, since then, we've both traveled around the world quite a bit. Uh, now we're in very different parts of the world. Um, but he joins me today. He is the CTO currently of Digital Expo. But Amando, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, basically right now I'm CTO of Digital Expo. Previously, I was just uh, contracting. Uh, I contracted for as a developer, as DevOps and several things. And uh, before that, my longest employment was uh, Trivago in uh, Germany. So how long have you been involved in in d development? Has it been your entire career, I suppose? I mean, I taught myself how to code when I was a kid, and I didn't actually realize I could turn it into a career. So it's all I ever did, except for last summer, uh, because I didn't have a job, uh, because I didn't want a job. And I was just uh, playing around in summer, just uh, in a camper van, but I ended up breaking my collarbone. So I ended up having to get a job uh, with a friend of a friend's girlfriend's uncle that owned a restaurant. And uh, I ended. I started off just like as a kitchen assistant, but uh, I'm not the type that can just do that. So I ended up replacing the chef <laughs> with a broken collarbone, by the way. And uh, yeah, so I can cook all sorts of uh, super traditional Norwegian dishes from the mountains, which people don't expect the Portuguese guy to be able to do. So yeah, when's, that, when's the movie coming out? That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so you're living in Norway right now. Uh, you're originally from Portugal, where, of course, you and I met uh, several years ago. Um, and now you're a CTO. That's, uh, that's interesting. That's good. So today we're going to go through some questions and answers, or we're going to go through questions and hopefully provide some answers. Um, and I don't like to be the only person giving answers. So, uh, I, I hope that we can make this interesting. Our first question today comes from Dave who asks, why is it so hard to persuade people not to put passwords, tokens, or other secrets in a Git repository? It's a tough one. I mean, it's a mistake I've made. And uh, if people hadn't told me like, hey, be careful, because it's something else you don't really think about. Like uh, you assume, because it requires quite some technical knowledge to actually do anything with it. But if it's in a public repository, yeah, I mean, you're asking for trouble. But um, yeah, otherwise, passwords, app secrets, uh, API secrets, etc. I'm not certain. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I guess people just overlook it completely because it feels like information that no one can do anything with when it's, in fact, mm -hmm. clearly the opposite. Yeah, I would imagine that it, well, f first, many developers, or I think probably every developer at some point in their career doesn't even realize it's an issue, right? As you, as you mentioned. Um, once you do realize it's an issue, what's the alternative? Uh, that, that's not always obvious. Uh, you need to keep that stuff somewhere, probably. You don't want to keep it on a, on a post-it note on your desk. Uh, so where do you where do you put those secrets? Of course, there are solutions that provide uh, solutions now these days. Um, but yeah, they're not obvious, aren't they? I mean, if you want to use HashiCorp Vault or you want to use uh, one one password or LastPass or one any of those sorts of things. Um, so I think I think my answer to the question is why why is it so hard to persuade people? 
is first you have to educate them and and that's complicated yes it is i mean you said that there are tools to do it and people put it in git repositories but um, if you actually search for uh, in url trello.com and a password username you find public trello boards with passwords and usernames for facebook's uh, shopify's uh, ebay's etc etc because uh, sometimes I guess people just don't know what they're doing. I mean, uh, development is complicated, so you end up spending more time in the actual development and then you just overlook this because you can't necessarily justify it to a project manager like, yeah, it's gonna take us a week to figure out where to store passwords. That's not something that you can easily sell, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. And, and actually, this is something I'm dealing with on a project I'm helping with right now. We have credentials stored in Git and we know we need to remove them. We haven't gone public yet. You know, there's no public users using the, the service yet, but we're trying to move that way in the next couple of weeks. And we need to, uh, you know, one of the backlog items is for each service, cr remove the credentials from Git, recycle the credentials so that the ones that are in Git are no longer uh, useful. Uh, and honestly, I don't know where I'm gonna be storing all these passwords yet. I mean, so, some of them I'll probably put in uh, in GitHub as, as like environment variables in, in the GitHub, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's one easy solution it's not very scalable but it i guess it gets you a little bit closer to security than in the git repository because then it's only on git it's not on everybody's laptop right exactly so yeah i, th I, I guess it's, it's a really big hairy uh problem I'm, I'm sorry dave we can't answer this really clearly for you <laughs> we did talk about this by the way in episode two of tiny devops um uh my guest uh, talked about the time that they accidentally committed some uh, credentials to the repository and they, they made the decision. It was a private repository, but it was still, I, I think it was GitHub, but it was private. So they still made the decision to scrub the repository, recycle all those credentials at great cost, just because they were, uh, they wanted to be careful enough not to expose any, any problems if that would ever become public knowledge. So this one comes from Jerry, who submitted the question by LinkedIn. And he says, one thing I have discussions with people about all the time is if developers become better DevOps engineers than those who are with an infrastructure background. Ooh. Depends how opsy the DevOps role is, because I mean, I've been called DevOps for roles that were front end, and I've been called DevOps for roles that were just operations. So uh, in the just operations roles, I was a little bit out of my depth because I'm not the best operations person. But uh, the way I see it, DevOps is kind of good enough to deploy, but not good enough to secure everything properly. Okay. So someone with a proper background in infrastructure is probably going to make a very ops-heavy DevOps role better than uh, someone with a dev background. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I've I've often been of the opinion that development is more important for for devops and make, make, before i before i make that claim let me clarify what i mean by devops because you started on that topic yes. um when i think of a devops engineer i'm really thinking of an operations engineer uh, or a site reliability engineer or something like that uh, i know not everybody means that um but I, it is very important to be clear about what we mean when we use a vague word like devops so what i'm talking about is somebody in fact, I'll just I'll just say it like this. I'm thinking of a site reliability engineer, um, which isn't always clear in everybody's mind either, but I think is a little more clear than DevOps. Uh, and I, 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 
base this on the the Google SRE book. Um, so that's what I have in mind. Not that that's a strict definition, but something in that vicinity of of responsibilities. So with that in mind, I tend to have be of the opinion that a development background is more important than an infrastructure background. However, I wonder if I'm mistaken about this because there's a lot of infrastructure uh, out there that developers don't necessarily know about. And you know, I've, I've spoken to some people recently who challenged me or, or challenged this concept. Um, developers don't tend to think about things like upgrading firmware on routers and uh, what version of the uh, disk driver are you using and does that SCSI interface inter interface with the, you know, those sorts of things. The in infrastructure people probably do think about more. That's why I said it depends on uh, how opsy the DevOps role is. Like, um, yeah, I mean, I've been out of my depth in some DevOps roles, and it required quite a lot of uh, on-the-side learning and studying. But someone that would already have that background, then they wouldn't have to. But uh, let's face it, 80% of the work was just development, uh, not the ops. So 20% of the work was the ops, but uh, it was quite deep ops. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting point, but you're still saying that development is more important and then you're countering your own point or. Yeah, so, so that, that's, that's been my view or that's been my I, my view or my approach up until recently when I, I've been challenged on this and I'm having to to reconsider whether I was wrong all these years, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on each, uh, each company has a different idea of what DevOps actually is. Like, um, I mean, you saw the, uh, the LinkedIn post I posted with the, with the project manager poking the DevOps guy, like do DevOps. That was going to be a part of an article where I just kind of asked people what they understand by each word, but it got too complicated to find an interface that people would just do it seamlessly and easily. So I just ended up not doing it, at least not yet. But if you ask what is DevOps to 10 people, you're going to get 10 different answers. And yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny that we talk about this now because uh, even at work, we're all annoyed that everyone has a different idea of what each word actually means. So we thought about making a book that everybody could agree on. Okay, this means that. Uh, we respect the book uh, ISO 3616 for uh, <laughs> development terms. If you don't like it, go away. I like that idea. That would be very helpful with a lot of terms, uh, not just DevOps, uh, product yes. manager, product owner, Agile. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, Jerry, I'm sorry. Uh, once again, we don't have a definitive answer, but I guess we're we're being great consultants here and telling you the answer depends. So it, clearly, <laughs> we both have consultant backgrounds. Another question from Dave: uh, Do you have an automatic process for rolling back failed deploys? No. It's the one thing that like, um, it's important, but not urgent. So it tends to just get the can tend to get tends to get kicked down the, the down stairs. The, down the road. Or, what's kick the expression the again? Yeah. Yeah. Down the road. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's the one thing that every time something happens and we have to roll back, we think, okay, next time I have to write this process, but then you, you never end up doing it because other things have priority. How do you handle rollbacks manually then? How, how are you doing that now? Uh, depends uh, on which service, each some slightly different, but, um, it's way too manual. I'm embarrassed to share. Well, that's, that's why they hired you to, to, to fix it. <laughs> so, uh, what, what would the ideal look like, uh, for you? What, if you had the time to invest in this now, what would you go toward? Uh, I would just do blue green with, uh, either the blue or the green. I don't know which one comes first. 
um, only deploy to a small amount of people. And then if that fails, you simply at the um, load balancer level, just stop it and send 100% of traffic to the previous one. But this is not super, um, this is not something like for shipping every day kind of thing. But I guess it could be, but blue-greens are expensive. So yeah, I'm sure there is a happy medium somewhere. And of course, the, uh, the project manager in me just says, just don't deploy anything that needs to be rolled back. And that's, yeah, that's there you it. Go. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. We can close off early today. Exactly, we did it, boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and, and of course, blue-green won't work for every project. It, it depends on, you know, you probably need at least two instances of your project for that to, mm -hmm. to be applicable. So if you have something with it's a uh, that can't be run as multiple instances, that's a problem. Um my approach, of course, so right now I'm not working on any projects that have uh, automated rollbacks. So the, the main project I'm working on is, is very early stage, as I described earlier. And uh, and we don't have automatic rollbacks, but I, I suppose, I mean, the closest we have is automatic roll forward. I mean, in the sense that if you revert the code in Git, it will be deployed automatically. So we're doing continuous de delivery or continuous deployment, if that makes okay, sense. So, you, so could if, just, you could just open up it, your terminal, revert to a certain commit push, and it just reverts on the server. Yeah. So that would that would re that would of course revert it in the repository, which mm -hmm. in turn would kick off the entire release process again, uh, and you'd have a new version on on the server. And I, I actually like that. I, I prefer that approach to actual rollbacks when it's feasible it isn't always feasible but i think it can be feasible in many cases and i like that better because you don't have two processes to to work on whether they're either manual or automated you just it's just a simpler thing you just have one process every piece of software change goes through the same process and if you need to revert just do it at the git level rather than worrying about your your docker images or whatever it is uh rolling back what do you think but how would an automated process actually be is it something that i don't know measures the amount of 500s and if there's a spike after a release it does all this automatically because what you described is kind of automatic already but is it something that detects that it's need to, that it needs to be rolled back or just push of a button and it rolls back because you essentially just described that by reverting to a previous commit yeah so in this case we don't have anything automatically doing a rollback um so i guess i guess we need that that, that dictionary again to define exactly. automatic, uh, what are we automating? Are we automating the detection of failure or just the the resolution once it's detected? So what I just described, uh, yeah, does not detect, oh my, oh my, too many 500s or the service is down, so roll back. Um, I don't know if, if Dave was asking about that level of automation. So um, one other question from Dave, how do you find meaning and satisfaction in the indifferent existential vacuum of modern life okay that uh, that changed the tone um, <laughs> basically like it's just a simulation nothing really matters so that's um yeah it's, it's a tough one to answer but uh just do what makes you happy don't do drugs stay in school so i i i, I try to i try to avoid the indifferent existential vacuum of modern life by by uh focusing on my family and friends and and aspects of life that are not indifferent um but i guess to each his own i'm, I'm sorry dave I mean, that's your outlook <laughs> this is essentially why i want to have kids so so so, so somebody will like you 
<laughs> like instead, instead of just uh, instead of finding friends, I just make them. You know? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be married and have a hundred kids so I can have a hundred friends and no one can say no to being my friend. Uh, actually, I do have a good answer. I do have a good answer. I think creating is the, the answer for everything because you're made to create, except on the seventh day you're made to rest. But you're made to create. And uh, software developers make things, but it's very abstract. It's, you can't hold it. You can't grab it. Like uh, when I converted a van into a camper, it was the first time I did things with my hands for a long time to actually make a camper van. It's, it's not easy. And then uh, the first trips I went on it, like I just press a button and my heater goes on in a camper that I built myself. That's pretty cool. So I think creating is the trick. And if you're feeling this existential vacuum, uh, maybe you're going through a phase of just consuming too much and you just need to close the books, close YouTube, close Netflix, and just go do something, actually create something, make something. Could be a kid, could be a house, could be a camper van, could be a drawing, a painting, photography, whatever. But you need to create something. And something that you can grab is better than something you can't. That's an amazing answer. You had to change this uh, podcast from tiny DevOps to tiny philosophy DevOps or Phil, Phil DevOps or something. That's, that's yeah, exactly, good. Phil DevOps. <laughs> what do you do for interview preparation? You, you've you've recently landed a new job, so maybe this is fresh on your mind. I don't. Like I actually got this job. It's it's an interesting one because I mean I just read. I came across one of your uh, newsletters, which was pushing back for the code test. And um, and that was, I just do that naturally because I'm kind of lazy. But um, for certain roles, that's actually a good thing. And uh, this happened to be one of them. So, yeah. And um, basically, they were like, yeah, okay, we're interested. We want, we want you to go for the next phase. Uh, please do this case study. Please create this presentation and then present it to these people and so and so. But, I mean, I was working full time at the time and I didn't need another job. So, yeah. I was like, okay, actually, I'm not going to do that. It's too much work. Why don't you just put me in front of the team and everyone can ask whatever they want. And if they like me, then good. If not, no. And uh, then they said, oh, yeah, but uh, all the other people that applied have already done this process with the case study and the presentation. So we think it would be unfair for them. And I said, um, well, I also think it would be unfair for them. So uh, let me know if you need an architect some sometime down the line. And, uh, and then, yeah, I thought that was it. And then like a week later, they were like, okay, uh, We'll sit you in front of the team and they can just ask you questions. <laughs> That's a nice story. <laughs> and then to prepare for that, like, I mean, there were some new concepts to me, like uh, they were event sourced and CQRS and uh, all these shiny things. So I had to prepare for that a little bit. But I just, I'm honest. I said, okay, this is the first time I heard the terms. This is what I read just now. And uh, yeah, and then explain it, like, explain it to a golden retriever. And if you can explain it to a golden retriever, you can... You can go deeper as you need to. And I haven't had to go deeper yet because my, my position is super high level. But uh, yeah, I know enough about it to explain it to a golden retriever, which sometimes yeah, there's a lot of golden retrievers on the board. So I hope none of them are listening to this episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, they know I okay. say this, but it's okay. <laughs> what kind of research did you do on the on the company before you, uh, before you accepted the role? Did oh, yes. Of course, I kind of read the website, and of course, my first uh, interview is prep for the next one. So, uh, because you read the website, that says one thing, and usually it's uh, way far, especially in startups, what they say on the website is way further ahead than what they actually have. So, uh, a good question is what do you actually have? Where do you want to go? Size of industry, stuff like that. Uh, but, uh, and also, a good one is um, 
doing some uh, background on the people that are going to interview you. Like uh, you can check Facebooks, Instagrams, LinkedIn, etc. Find stuff to build rapport. And yeah, if you get the if you, can, if you connect with the people, usually that's what it takes to land a job. So and not, like not in a psycho way, by the way, just like an actual genuine interest friendly way. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think you and I probably think very, fairly similarly. I mean, when I'm preparing for an interview, I, I basically don't. Uh, I mean, and, and part of that is my own philosophy. I, I think there's two aspects to it. One is I feel like at this stage of my career, uh, I don't need to, like, study for an interview. I, I know maybe when I was fresh out of school, I would have felt I needed to. Um, and, and a lot of people do. But at this stage, I've been programming for 15 years. If I can't do an interview now, I'm never going to do an interview properly. So I, I don't feel the need. Um, second, I strongly feel that the purpose of an interview is for me to get to know the company and the company to get to know me. And if I'm putting on a facade, that's not going to, to happen. So I, I, I uh, sorry to interrupt you here, but um, I worked with a guy, an American guy in Dusseldorf called George, and uh, he ran a comedy club, like an expat comedy club. Hilarious guy. And one time, uh, and then he wanted to go into project management, so he took the PMP course, etc. And to the interview, he went wearing a suit, and he was very serious. And that's not who he is. That's that wasn't his authentic self. And then they turned him down because they said they thought he was too serious. But he runs a comedy club. Yeah, that's... <laughs> he's not a too serious guy. He just uh, acted serious to try and get a serious role, but he was turned down for being too serious. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wore a suit to one job interview early in my career. And they, I don't know why they turned me down. It may have been for the same reason, but I know I was so nervous that in that interview, um, and I've never worn a suit since before or since, and I've never felt as nervous before or since. So, so I mean, I, I like wearing suits. I like to make the effort. But if you're clearly overdressed, you can always just take your blazer off and pull your sleeves back, and there you're casual-ish. So yeah. So uh, back to what I was saying. I, I don't prepare in the sense of cramming or studying ahead or, or perfecting my smile or practicing a speech. I don't do any of that sort of stuff because I don't think it's my genuine self. Um, I do generally do a, at least a minimal amount of research, maybe not for the first interview because the first interview is often just a screening and they don't know anything about me. It's okay if I don't know about them. But by the second time, I should at least know what products they're selling and uh, who the CEO is, some general things like that. And uh, I think the most important thing I do is I have a mental checklist of what's important for me and what are my deal breakers. Um, and I, I'm really bad at this sometimes, especially the what's important for me thing. Uh, I, I, I downplay a lot of those. Sometimes I'm talking to somebody like, you know, what, what salary do you require? For example, and I'm like, well, I, I would kind of like to maybe ish have this salary. Uh, it, it's, it's important, especially after you've had a job or two and you're not just looking for the first job that will come along. I think it's important to know what salary you expect, to know if you're willing to commute and how far, to know whatever the things, whatever is important to you, to know those things and be firm, polite, but firm about those in the interview. Don't be wishy-washy and, and pretend that, yeah, that's 5,000 less than I want, but it's probably okay as long as we can negotiate on, is there a ping pong table or something like that, you know? Yeah, I, didn't, I don't think so much about what I want because what I want, I know, so it's okay. But uh, it's usually like you mentioned, like a pricing models. Um, did you mention pricing models? Maybe you did. No. But uh, pricing models, um, strategy goals they actually have, like their current MRR is X. Uh, what would they like to go to? And this also shows a certain business-mindedness. 
which for a role like mine makes perfect sense, but for a specifically developer job, it might not, but it's also good to be budget conscious and yeah, I mean, it's all about money in the end. So yeah, to avoid the topic doesn't make much sense. One last question. It's, it's related to the job search. Uh, it's from a different person. This one's from Joshua and he says, um, he's, he's in school. Uh, I'm just reading through it here. If you don't mind me asking, what is the best company to work for as a beginner? I'm trying to look to get in a couple of company types. Uh, it's considering a consultancy where he can work with B2B clients. He's also looking as a direct hire as an engineer, DevOps engineer, uh, for more quote, real world experience, he says. First, he says that learning is more important to him than salary because he believes if he has enough skills, he can learn more in the future. I would agree with that. And then he says uh, he's uh, concerned about switching jobs in the future. If he works as a consultant, will it be harder to transition to an engineering role in the future? So it, there's a lot there. The general question is, as a beginner, out of school, what kind of job should you look for? Ah, it's a good one because consultancy is attractive because of the money, but usually you stay at a company for a few years before getting into consultancy because in consultancy you make choices, but you don't see the consequences of those choices uh, because it's usually shorter lived um, employment, like six months, a year, etc. Whereas if you're in the company for two, three, four years, you get to see the consequences down the line of the choices you made. And that makes you better well-rounded than just making bad choices everywhere and never seeing the consequences of it. That's really good insight. So it's, uh, yeah. But of course, salary for consulting is good, but you can always go to a company, be an employee for four or five years, or not even so much, like two or three is probably good enough to get a good idea of it and go into consultancy after that. That's really good advice. And that's an angle I had not thought of. So, so really, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I've never worked in a consultancy uh, per se. I don't know if you have, um, but uh, I mean, I've, I do consulting now, but uh, after having had 15 years experience. Uh, it also so, depends what you mean by consulting. That's true. <laughs> so we need that dictionary again. We See, do. that's the third time. That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've made it through our list of questions for the day. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, it's been great. Uh, remember, if you have any questions that you'd like me, Amanda, or some other future uh, guest host to answer, please send them to Jonathan at jhall.io. I'm going to say that again because my tongue got messed up. If you have questions that you'd like me to address on this show with possibly Amando or some future host, uh, just send them to Jonathan at jhall.io. Once again, if you record a video or an audio of yourself asking the question, it'll go to the top of the list. But a text uh, format is perfectly fine too. So until next time. Did you know you can watch this episode and other Tiny DevOps content? Search YouTube for Tiny DevOps to see all of my guests' beautiful faces. My thanks to Riley Day for the Tiny DevOps theme music.